Last week we started this new section which began in verse 15 and we're going to be covering verses 17 and 18 today. And it presents to us what we'll call a perfect testimony. A couple Sunday nights ago at our family gatherings, we, we celebrated baptism with, with, with someone, as we often do. We, we have a family gathering one, once a month on Sunday night, and we celebrate the ordinances there. We give updates to the church and, and, and those kinds of, of things. And, and baptism is one of the two ordinances that that was given to the church to symbolize the Lord's work for us, the other one being communion or the Lord's table. During communion, we, we take the elements of the, the bread and cup, and we do that as a church family. And to use Paul's words, we, as we do that, we, we're to do that, or as often as we do that, we remember the Lord's death until He comes. And so we're to take the table often, and we're to take it until... Christ returns is a repeated reminder, a repeat reminder of his substitutionary work and an anticipation of the kingdom. Because Jesus says we won't, he won't take the, 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 the table again until he does it with us in, 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 in his kingdom. Baptism, on the other hand, is not something that we repeat. It's the initial public testimony for someone. Of course, we repeat it as a church, but individuals do it once. And it's their personal confession where they declare that they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. And by believing in His name, they are now His follower. It, they stand in the water before the people that are gathered and they testify they testify about three things. They testify of their life before they came to Christ, before He found them. They testify about how they came to Him. And then they also testify that they are an unashamed follower of their, of their Lord. And every good testimony has those three parts. There's a description of what you were before you came to Christ. You have a testimony it's unique to you, but it has some similar parts. There's a description of what you were before you came to Christ. And then there's an explanation of how you came to the truth. This is how I was saved. Came home from church and was troubled about my soul, and mom read, uh, you know, the Romans read to me, and I prayed. There, there's a testimony, an explanation about how you believed. And then there's a declaration of, of how you're a committed follower. You're, you're different. You're now committed to a different master. I mean, if you don't recognize that you are a sinner without hope before Christ, you don't have a testimony because you haven't realized what you need to be saved from. Everyone who is saved understands what they were saved from. I, I am lost. If you've not come to embrace the truth of the gospel, even if you can't remember the moment, the date, or, or the hour, you don't have a testimony because the gospel has content. You upon understanding these facts, these truths about who Jesus is and what He did, you believe. You transfer your trust from yourself, whatever you were believing in and trusting in, you transfer that now to a new set of facts, Christ alone. And if you've not been changed by the coming, of Christ, coming to Christ 
or you now live different to, to please God, you don't have a testimony either. Because if salvation is anything, it is, in essence, it's new life. There, there's a change, a transformation that, that, that takes place, the passage that, that we, we know. We're, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that newness brings about a, a, a new life. And this trifold pattern is exactly what Paul has tucked into Romans 6 as an encouragement in the middle of his argument, as he's arguing against those who are questioning his message of of grace. Paul has been appealing to the logic of those who, who said his message of grace will unleash our sin because the law has been has been set aside. I mean, the gospel message of grace was so potent, so dependent upon God alone in the way that Paul described it, that those who heard it were were saying, I mean, if there's no outside restraint or rules, then then people will just do whatever they want to do, Paul. I mean, you've got to be leaving something out. And Paul says, if you think that, you're not using your head. You surely don't understand grace. Last week we said Paul describes the grace of God in such a way that it produces common objections. These are not just objections to to, to Jews, but but it's an objection that you may even have felt in your own heart or asked at times because grace stuns the human senses in disbelief. I mean, it's a grace that's greater than all of my sin, and this grace remains with us all of, of our lives, even after coming to Christ, even after we sin. It's a grace that, that forgives us. That's what Paul just got done explaining in, in chapter 5. And his final statement brings up some questions. So he launches into this new series of explanations in chapter 6, all of which are focused on how grace deals with, with sin. The gospel is so one-sidedly shocking that you find yourself asking, could this really be true? I mean, salvation comes by believing? I mean, and nothing else? And Paul says, not only is God's grace the only way of salvation, it's also sufficient to keep us from sin as well. It's sufficient to save, and it's sufficient to keep us from sin. And so he deals with these questions in verses 1 and 15 that the people were, were asking of Romans 6. And he, he begins two sections that explain his argument. And, and, and they're, they, they're both introduced by similar questions about, about grace. So part 1, Romans 6, 1-14, answers the questions, Shall we go on sinning because we are under grace? Which, which we already looked at. And then part 2 is... Romans 6, 15 through 23, and, and it answers the question, shall, shall we sin? Because we're, we're no longer under Old Testament law anymore. And last week we covered verses 15 and 16. Look at me what at verse 15 introduces this new section. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. But both of these questions are about the same subject with a slightly different twist. It's about the, the subject of grace. The first question is focused on continuing in sin because we're under grace. And the second question is about restraint. The law was a restrainer. It was like a fence that that held your wicked heart in. And and Paul says, that's gone. It went something like this, the first question. Paul, if if you're saying that I'm forgiven for all of my sin by grace already, then, then can't I just go on sinning without any consequence because God's going to forgive me anyway? You might even hear people that, have such a perverted idea. 
they didn't understand the first five chapters, first four chapters, I should say, of, of Romans. But second, the second question in verse 15, if there's no external list of rules, I mean, to keep me, now, now that I'm saved, I mean, what is there to hold me back? What, what is there to keep my sin from, from, from running? I mean, won't I just lack restraint? Won't people lack restraint and run wild? I mean, shouldn't we keep a little bit of the law in there? That's what Paul's saying. They're saying, and Paul says, if that's what you're thinking, you don't understand what the gospel does. I mean, it's not just something that, that saves you from your sin. It's something that transforms you, makes you a new, new creature with a new master. I mean, the Old Testament law was, was viewed as a boundary that kept you from sin. And it also showed you what to do for righteousness. And so Paul comes along and says, you're no longer under the law since, since Christ has come. You're now under grace. And he's not arguing against wisdom. He's arguing for where the real power is. The real power is not in some external code. The real power is now in your heart. The heart that used to run wild is now restrained by grace because it's been transformed. It has a new master. It has new want-tos, new desires that you didn't have before you came to Christ. Because people who have been transformed by grace have, have no need for extra rules because they desire in their heart to please God. They may not know how to please God, so there might be need for instruction there. But he uses this analogy of biblical slavery to, to answer the accusation that Christians under grace are lawless because grace changes someone's master from sin to, to obedience. And, and if that hasn't happened, Paul says there is no salvation. No law is going to fix the problem. Now, every part of the we talked about last week how every part of this illustration of slavery doesn't correlate. When, when you think of slavery, you think of American slavery and the evils of it. But, but, but Paul's not, not focusing there. This is Roman slavery, which, which was different in a lot of ways. Some things that were similar, but different in a lot of ways. And so there's some parts of this illustration of slavery that connect and some that don't. And, and, and the part that does, Paul emphasizes. He doesn't leave us guessing. He shows us it's, with this term obedience. He says, the one you obey is your master. It's that simple. I mean, the unbeliever follows his sin. That's his master. But, but someone who has been transformed by, by grace obeys Christ, and they'll live a changed life, which is now marked by ongoing submission, not profligate living. Or as Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, love precedes obedience, and Love comes from this changed heart. And as Paul makes this argument to those who, who would question his message, he, he's tucked some encouragement, tucked it away in there for those who've already received the message. He's, he's giving this, this, this defense of the gospel. He's, he's explaining away these questions, these, these objections. But as he does, he's writing to people who have believed his message. So he includes some encouragement in there. Look, if you would, at verse 17. After he introduces this slavery illustration, he says, I thank God that that's not what most of you believe. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. I mean, he's talking to believers here. He says, I thank God that that's not what, what most of you believe because you believe from the heart, a teaching that is transforming you, he says. And then he gives one of the clearest pictures of a Christian testimony that you can find in the Bible, which I give Lloyd-Jones credit for first pointing that out. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, verse 17 and 18 gives one of the clearest definitions of a Christian 
found anywhere in the Bible. What is a Christian? What do they look like? Well, right here it is, verses 17 and 18. Look at verse 17. He says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. This is what you were, and now you become obedient. This is what you, you are, and a transformation happened. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Now you live a new life. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I mean, Paul says a Christian who has undergone a change. Paul says you were something before. You were slaves to sin. That's how you lived. But you became something new. You, you became obedient from, from the heart to, to doctrine to which you were committed, to teaching. And then you live differently. It changed your life. You became slaves of, of righteousness. In verses 17 and 18, Paul begins to apply this general principle about slavery that he just gives in, in verse 6 or verse 16. And he starts the application with the positive side. He applies it to Christians, and then he'll apply it to, to what we were before in, in verse 19, which we'll look at that next week. It's the next side of the, the application, the negative side. It will remind us of our spiritual slavery before salvation. And that master still, still has a voice. Remember this entire section, verse 15, all the way down to the verse that you, that you know, for the wages of sin is death, that the gift of God is eternal life. All of that is one answer to this question that begins in verse, verse 15. It's just divided in three sections. So, verse 15, what, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? General argument about slavery. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the ones? There's a general argument about slavery. Verse 17 through 19, he applies it spiritually. Verse 17, but thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin. Not just a slave in general, but now a slave of sin. Verse 18, slave of righteousness. And then in verses 20 through 23, he he contrasts the results of both of those slaveries. Therefore, what, verse 21, therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things which you're now ashamed? What, for the outcome, verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And then the summary, for the wages of sin. You earn from sin, you earn wages, and it's death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And so there's the, the summary of the results. He's, he's contrasting the, the results. And when you put it together, there, there are three arguments that, that explain spiritual slavery, explain how grace operates spiritual slavery. There's the representation of slavery, there's the reality of slavery, and there's the results of, of slavery. And today you're going to see the, the perfect Christian testimony. As Paul describes this reality of, of slavery to Christ. You're either a slave of sin, bound by its power, or you're God's slave, transformed by, by, by grace. And the first argument that we, that we saw last week was an unrestrained question and a, an illustration of slavery and then this principle of, of obedience. Look at verse 16. He says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey? I mean, he basically says, verse 15 is an unreasoned question. You're not using logic. Because his argument 
begins here with an appeal to reason through this general principle about slavery. And the Romans understood slavery. Two-thirds to three-fourths of them were slaves. Or, if they were free, they likely owned slaves or interacted with them on a regular basis. And he says, do you not know? Do you not understand slavery? Of course you do. You, you live in it. It's all around you. This is common sense. And the conclusion that, that you should be drawing what is logical is slaves obey their masters. There's a slave, he obeys his master. It's plain logic, Paul says. And as a Christian, you have a new master. You're saying if I remove the law, then everybody's going to run wild. Paul says slaves obey their masters. And he uses this illustration that the Romans understood well because most of them were slaves. Again, it's an, not a perfect illustration. Human slavery is not a perfect, perfect correlation, so he shines the spotlight. He, he uses this word obedience twice. Do not go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience. Your slaves are the ones whom you obey. He emphasizes obedience and ownership because that's what really happens. Salvation. It reveals your new master. Grace changes your relationship to God, and it changes your heart. So you now desire to do the things that were once written in the law, which is Paul's explanation for those who claim his message produces lawless people. Grace does not produce lawless people. It produces obedient people. That's what Paul means by focusing on obedience. Just as I naturally obeyed the impulses of sin, I now supernaturally obey the desires of Christ. And that obedience produces righteous living. Verse 16. This is for review. Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Now, eternal life is not the result of obedience. It's a gift of God, which is what the last verse tells us. So Paul rightly says here that obedience from the heart leads to righteousness. It's a byproduct. Righteousness is a byproduct of obedience, and obedience is because grace has transformed your, your heart. Obedience leads to this kind of righteous life, which God's people should live and will live. And that's why the, the gospel brings what the law never could and, and never, never will. Well, that's the front porch of Paul's argument. He puts us on the, brings us on the front porch, and, and now he, he begins to open the door... And the first thing that you find whenever you walk in is a testimony of this kind of, of transformation. I mean, how do you know if this has happened to you? How do you know if grace has transformed you? Well, this is what it looks like. I'll give you what verse 17. He says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of, of righteousness. So here is his, here's his second argument to explain how grace operates through spiritual slavery. It's the reality of, of slavery. There's a testimony of what you were before. There's a testimony of the transformation and a testimony of what you, what you are now. You were a slave of sin but you have become obedient from the heart to doctrine, to teaching that, that changes you, and you're now a slave of righteousness. There's this reality. And Paul begins by giving thanks. He begins verse 17. He begins the testimony by giving thanks. 
But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin. He's on the, he's on the, the, the unsaved side of the equation. You were slaves of, of sin. He's talking about salvation. And notice he thanks God. He doesn't thank you. He doesn't say, I'm so thankful that you Romans were smarter or more willing than these stiff-necked Jews who are asking questions about grace. You guys get it and they don't. He doesn't say that at all. Or, I'm so thankful that when someone presented the option of the gospel to you, you used your free will and believed. He doesn't say that at all. No, no. He thanks God for the entire work that he's about to describe because salvation is of the Lord. I mean, he's the one that sought you, not just saved you, or you would still be lost in your, in your sin. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Two works there. And it was by his will that you were, you were even transformed by the, by the truth. Look at how James describes Salvation, the, one of the earliest epistles. He says, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be kind of a first fruits among His, his creatures. And you remember the context of James chapter 1. James is saying you're to count it all joy when you enter into all types of trials, not because you enjoy the trial, but because God produces something in you through it. It's a difference for a believer and an unbeliever. A believer goes through hardships, and an unbeliever goes through hardships. But, 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 but God forces those hardships to change a believer, to conform a believer. It brings about maturity in a believer. There is hardships for an unbeliever. And he says even when you lack wisdom to go through a trial, and you, and you may need it, you can ask the giving God. You can ask God. He doesn't withhold anything. He upbraideth not. He doesn't hold any of it back. He'll give you the wisdom. And in order to show you that he's a good God, he reminds you God doesn't tempt any man by, by evil. He can't. And he says he's good. And he uses salvation. Like, of course you know God's good, right? You want evidence? He saved you. You remember your salvation? And here's his, here's his description of salvation. In an exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, which is the gospel so that we would be kind of a first fruits among His creatures. I mean, you think if God saved you and He's the one that initiated your salvation, He's going to leave you alone in the midst of a trial? Of course you can get wisdom from Him. Of course He's not going to tempt you to evil. He's good, evidence of His goodness. And He's the initiator of the work in, in salvation, and you are the, you're the responder. That's what John says, Jesus says in John, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the, on the last day. So he doesn't give thanks because they were sinners. Oh, I, I thank God that, that God ordained your sin. You're sinners. I thank God. He's not saying that at all. He's thanking God because they aren't that anymore. And God is the one who gets the credit for that transformation. He's not saying God can be blamed for your time of sin, like he's thankful for the time that they were in sin. This is a concessive idea. It's... Like, even though you were slaves of sin, you have become obedient, and I give God thanks for that. I, I, he's thanking God for delivering them. He's thanking God for saving them. And don't we do the same thing instinctively? I mean, when we think about our own salvation, when you're talking to the Lord about saving you, I mean, we never th thank God for our ability to look out for ourselves. 
I mean, Lord, you put it out there, but I, I want to pat myself on the back. I want to give you some credit. But I want to give myself some credit because I believe. You, you don't ever do that. Because you know you had nothing to do with it. You know you, you, you can't thank yourself, but you can thank God. You even do that whenever you pray for somebody who's lost. You don't ask God to give them more free will or more intelligence to believe on their own. And even if you were asking God for that, you're praying for that. shows that you know where the real power is. It's not in them, it's in the Lord because you're asking God to do it. I mean, if it was simply our ability to choose, then, then why are we asking God to do anything? I mean, it should just be like a gre- ingredients. The Lord put it out there and now you just mix it up. It's all on you. Now, that's not how you pray for an unsaved loved one at all. You, you say, oh, God, save them. You say, oh, God, open their eyes. Oh, God, open their hearts that they might believe. I know that unless you open their eyes, they'll not turn from their sin. And you do that because you know He can do that, and He's the only one who, who can. As MacArthur said, see, you're all closet Calvinists. You just didn't know it. And you don't think that it's something that only God can do. You're not paying attention to what Paul's been saying in the first five chapters of Romans. Look at how he describes someone before God saves them. If you would at verse 17. But thanks be to God, he thanks God, that though you were slaves of sin. This is how he describes the unsaved condition, slaves of sin. They were slaves who obeyed their master. They were not servants who could change masters. They were slaves, shackled to their master. You see, your problem is not with God or fairness or whether he loves all people. The problem is you don't understand man is as bad as the Bible says he is. I mean, you think man has the ability to respond without God first intervening and breaking the shackles of sin on his will, then you don't understand the human condition, Paul says. And he reminds us of the human condition right here. Slaves of, of sin. Let me just overwhelm you with, with Scripture for a moment, both from the, the Apostle Paul. What does he mean by slaves of, of sin? I mean, could, could he just mean something, you know, a little less than what you're, you're, you're saying, Pastor? Well, he's already described it for us. Back in chapter 3, I know this is small. Let me read it to you. As it is written, which this is Old Testament. It's written in the Old Testament, confirmed in the New. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not even one. Well, yeah, we know that. There's none righteous. Well, let me explain that a little bit further, Paul says. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. All right, now get specific, Paul. What, what, what comes out of their lives? Their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving. Notice the words, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. It's in them. They're, whose mouth is full of cursing and, and, and bitterness. I mean, he chooses these words specifically. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They want to shed blood. Destruction and misery are are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no, no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, you think that person is going to turn to God on their own? 
Now, without God empowering his will, Paul says man is an absolute slave of sin, unable to do anything. Some more words of the Apostle Paul that you know well. Put aside whether they're dead or not, but that's how he describes them. And you were, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. What, what does that look like? In which you formerly walked, you, you, you lived, you formerly lived according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. There's your master, the devil, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. It's the offspring of disobedience. Among them, we too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh, lust, desires, and the mind. This is total corruption. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as, as the rest. And then probably the, the, one of the greatest transitions in the Bible. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were in that condition, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He does three things. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raises us up with Christ, and He seats us. He seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that we, when we get to heaven, we, we could say, I stuck in my thumb and pulled out a plum, and what a good boy am I? Is that what we say? No. So God designed it this way so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There will be no boasting in heaven. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. I mean, I could go on, but you get the point. The problem is not with God's sovereignty. The problem is with our understanding of human depravity. We think man is better than he really is, and Paul's not deluded by that at all. But that doesn't mean that we're not responsible, or we don't make choices. You would back at verse 17, because now he brings in the other side of the equation, your part. Verse 17, but thanks be to God, there's the thanks to God, because you were in a condition that you couldn't get out of. You were slaves of sin, but then he says, you became obedient from the heart. So the first part of the Christian testimony is what you were before. You were slaves of sin. You don't stand in the waters of baptism and pat yourself on the back. You say, I'm here because Jesus saved me alone. But the second part is what you became upon receiving Christ. You became obedient from the heart. And with that next phrase, Paul turns the emphasis to your decision to submit to God. Maybe it's both components in this opening line of the testimony. God's initiating and sovereign work, and then our submitting and willful response. I mean, God initiated it or it wouldn't have happened, which is why we thank Him. But then He moves to the Spirit's work. When, when that happens, we act. We submit to the gospel. This is the same thing that John says, John chapter 1. That's the, the God part and the human part just kind of woven together here, and neither one of them are explained, but, but he keeps God up front. But as many as received him, but as many as received him, so you're receiving him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even those who believe, so there are people who are believing, they're believing in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. So he brings it back to God. God's the one that gets the credit for all of it. You see both sides there? 
And who's ultimately responsible? Paul's doing the same thing here. And he calls this reception of the gospel, believing, obedience from the heart. Which simply means we submit to the message. And the man, Christ Jesus. I mean, you understand the gospel is not just information. It's a call to submit to the truth. That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is God. That Jesus is Savior. It's not just an invitation. Of course it's an invitation. But it's a command for you to obey. It's that God demands that you repent and believe. It's right to do that. He's the only God. He's the only creator. That's what Paul means by obeying here. It's, it's not just an intellectual acknowledgement. I mean, I believed in God and Jesus and heaven and hell but before, before salvation. But, but then it's not just believing that information. It's submitting to it, obeying it from the heart. And you must decide what you'll do with Christ because the gospel doesn't just ask you to hear. It demands a response. And that's where the choice comes in. You must believe. You must choose. You must repent. And God will not do that for you. I mean, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Remind what everybody else says. Who do you say that I am? Personally, individually. And Paul says the Roman Christians answered that question, not with shallow agreement, but with deep and complete trust. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient, you became obedient from the heart. It was an obedience that was not just outward like the law, it was obedience that was inward. Paul adds where this obedience, this belief in the gospel, this submission to the gospel takes place. It's from within, It's, it's in your soul, it's in the deepest part of you. And Thomas Reiner says this points to the depth of their obedience. It was deep. Wasn't just nothing superficial here. It's a willing, joyful obedience to the gospel. It was a full and complete transfer of faith from themselves to Christ. That's exactly what we've seen. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. And remember what, what, what Paul just got done arguing when, when you see these words. The context is slavery. Slaves obey their master, which is why he, he, he uses this, this term. They obey their masters, and you are the slave of, to whomever you submit. And, and he's saying, you have submitted to a new master. And just as obedience reveals ownership in verse 16, obedience from the heart to the gospel message is, is an evidence of a new master. I mean, he's encouraging them. You understand this. You, you've submitted down to the heart. This is not giving lip service to God. You, you, actually, you actually love him. You actually obey from the heart. That's where this great change was made. A Christian is someone who is in an entirely different position, which is what Paul means by you became. Meaning that there's been a change. And that change is evidenced by this word uh, uh, obey. And, And notice he defines even what we obey. I mean, he's so particular with this verse. Verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were in this condition, God rescued you out of it. 
you became obedient, you submitted to the gospel from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. I mean, why didn't he just say you became obedient from the heart to the gospel? Well, he wants to make a point here. It's like when you were saved, you became obedient from the heart to a specific form or content of teaching. It's a word for doctrine. And that's something Paul says is transforming you. And it's God who delivered you to it. Notice how he ends. To which you were committed or to which you were delivered. This phrase is... It's got a lot of words in it, so it's harder to to make sense out of for for some. But I think if you just hold the context, it's it's pretty plain what Paul's saying. Paul says here, a specific teaching or doctrine. It's an imprint or mold that's conforming you into into its shape. That form of teaching that you're now aligned with, that you weren't aligned with with before. You notice that. It's not just teaching, but a form of teaching. It's now claimed your allegiance. This form of teaching, whatever that is, it's, you were delivered to it. it. You now submit to it. And you were brought to that place by God. It, it says you were, to which you were committed. Air is passive indicative. Something that happened to you. It's not something that you did. And so Paul says your response of obedience from the heart, was was to propositional truth. It was was to definite teaching. It it wasn't an empty feeling about God's love. You you didn't just know that you were were in a bad place and somebody gave you a tear-jerking illustration about there was a a child on the train, a man's son on the train tracks and the, the train full of people and... You know, the man sacrificed his son so the train could be, you know, could be rescued. And you go, oh, I want that kind of love. And you, and you, just, you, you submit to it. This is not an empty feeling about God's love. This is, this, this is doctrine or sentimental thoughts about Christ. It had content, Paul says, which you submitted to. The form of doctrine or teaching that Paul is talking about is, a, is the full and clear truth about, about God and about man and about Christ and then about the, the response that's necessary. And you don't come to this, this point of obeying the gospel if it's not clear or if it leaves anything out or it's overly naive. And unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of modern evangelism is just that. It's truncated. It's half the picture. It's incomplete. It's weak. It's watered down. I don't mean by that, that that you have to understand election or eschatology to be saved. The gospel is surely simple enough for a child to understand and, and, and believe. What I mean, though, is you have to understand your sin and the good news of what God's done about it. And there's specific truths that, that are attached to that. And people preach a gospel where heaven and forgiveness is the only message. Come to Christ and you can go to heaven. And, and they leave out the reality of man's condition or hell or wrath or, or what justification means or repentance. And Paul says, if you don't understand what you're believing, how can you commit to it from the heart, down to the heart level, where you're now going to obey it? You don't see the, you don't see the need for a substitutionary sacrifice and a Savior than then it'll just be whatever kind of God you want Him to be. And that's one of the main problems in the modern church. It preaches a partial gospel, which is no gospel at all. 
and so people don't get a hold of the real thing. And frankly, I think one of the best illustrations of this, Ray Comfort gave years ago. And he used the illustration of a, of a parachute. He says, if you tell a man to wear a parachute because it will make his flight more comfortable, you may get him to put it on, but he won't wear it long. So he makes this illustration about, about a man in the middle seat on a, you know, a 747. You know, you're all scrunched in there anyway, and somebody comes along to the guy and says, hey, that's pretty, middle seat's pretty uncomfortable. It's pretty stinky sitting there, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, that's horrible sitting here. Let me give you something that will make your, your flight more comfortable. Here, here's a parachute. Put it on. And the guy puts the parachute on. And he's sitting there, and he's like, I'm even more uncomfortable. And, and the, that guy walks off, and, and after a while, he takes the parachute. This is not making my flight more uncomfortable. And he, and he throws it aside. He says, you might convince him to put it on, but, but, but he's going to take it off as soon, as, the, as, soon as, it, as it doesn't do what you promised him to do or it affects the comfort of his ride. But, but you tell that same man in the middle seat or in first class that the plane is going down and you need to wear this, no, no matter how uncomfortable it makes him, he's going to hold on to it, isn't he? And he said, that's what we've done with Jesus. We've told people he'll make your ride in life more comfortable. He'll fix this or he'll fix that. And he'll fix a lot of things. And so the people put him on for that reason only, and then they throw him aside at the first discomfort. And the gospel can make you uncomfortable, can it? Following Christ is not always easy. But God says the plane is going down. <laughs> and Christ is the only one that can save you. And this specific teaching or doctrine molds or shapes you, Paul says. That's what Paul means by this form of teaching. It's, it's specific teaching. You've obeyed from the heart that form of teaching. What does he mean by this form of teaching? So you, you could have, he could have just said, you became obedient from, from the heart to that teaching, to that doctrine. And we could have just went through what we just went He says form of teaching. It's a specific, specific word. It's the word for, for type. It's tupos. It, it means model or, or mold, just like they're types of Christ. The lamb is the type of Christ. So it gives us a model to understand. That's this word. And the source of this, of this mold is the teaching that you've been committed to. So he's saying this mark or type was, was made, made, made by the teaching. You've committed to teaching that marks you, is what Paul's saying. Teaching that we've come to believe in from the heart. It transforms us into a new pattern. Did you ever play with Play-Doh whenever you were, you were a kid? Remember Play-Doh comes with the, with, with the molds? You know, like a dinosaur, giraffe, and you administrators, you soon-to-be accountants or, or engineers got really worked up when the blue got mixed up with the with the, with the red, you kept all of the colors separate, and, and there are others of you just mixed it all together. It didn't matter, but you had the Play-Doh, and you, you put it there, and you had this mold. And the Play-Doh starts just like a lump and it, until it was committed to the mold. It's pressed into the mold. And then what comes out is, is, is not a lump. It comes out in a specific shape, a definitive shape. The Plato is then stamped with the image. That's the idea that Paul gives here. Paul says that's what, 
what happens with the gospel. You were once a slave of sin, but you were delivered over by God to a, to a new master, and you, that, which has content in, in teaching that you've now committed to. You've now obeyed from the heart, and this teaching molds you. It transforms you. You ready? Which is something that the law could never do. Don't lose the context of the argument here. I mean, the detractors, the detractors were saying that without the law, we'll just go our own way without any boundaries. We need some external fence. And Paul says, well, that external fence is there, but you're just still a lump of Play-Doh. You've been formed in any of the law. That fence isn't going to form you, going to change you. And not only that, you're behind the fence, but you're still a slave. You can't even do anything about, about your condition. Paul says it's the exact opposite of what, what you're thinking. Grace puts teaching in your heart where the law could never write it. And that transforms you into its mold, unlike the external work of the, of the law. And what you should be hearing here is the old covenant and the new covenant. Remember what Jeremiah 31 promises? Where is God going to write his law? Does he say the law's bad? The law's not bad, is it? Where does God say, under the new covenant, when, when the Messiah comes, where is he going to write the, write the law now? He's going to write it on your heart. And you're not even going to need a teacher. It's going to be instinctual. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that teachers are useless to you. I mean, the emphasis is you don't need a teacher because it's instinctual in you. You've been so changed, you've become obedient to a new master from the heart. And that teaching that's in you brings about righteous living. And he brings us back to where he started. Look at verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that, that form of teaching, teaching that shapes you, to which you were committed or to which you were delivered. He, he, he ends with it's a doctrine to which you were delivered. King James gets this exactly right here. It means you're delivered over to it. And so then the question that you, you should be asking is, who, who delivered you? Who gave you over to it? And Paul's already answered that question. It was God. You're delivered from slavery over to obedience to the truth. And that now changes you a little bit at a time. It'll change you completely. He began the good work and he'll finish it. And when you come to him that way, you live a new life. Here's the final part of the testimony, what we are now. Look at verse 18. form of teaching to which you were committed, verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of, of righteousness. And, and notice he brings up this contrast about being freed from, from sin. Paul begins by thanking God for it all because it's all grace. And the result of this change wrought in the heart by doctrine is obedience, and that results in a, in a new master. And he brings up this slavery to sin before and, and says you've now become a slave of righteousness because he's saying there, there's only two options. Remember what Paul wants us to focus on in the illustration of slavery. It's, it's obedience. And ultimately, there are only two masters, Adam or Christ. And those masters are in opposition to one another. There is no, no middle, middle ground. Having been freed from sin... You're a neutral party. That's not what he says. 
Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. There are only two options. And they produce very different results, which Paul will explain to us when he gets to verse 20 and beyond. Which leads Paul to this ultimate conclusion. You, you can't be a slave of, of both of these masters at the same time. Or to quote Jesus, you would love the one and hate the other. It's utterly impossible to be a slave of sin and to Christ at the same time. You may sin as a slave of Christ, but you'll hate it. And if you stay there, you'll be disciplined. They're eternal opposites. And you prove which one you, you serve by how you live. It's not what we say, but what, what we do. You, you can't say that you're in Christ and following the way of grace and yet live in sin. Because you would be a liar and gravely deceived. Living in sin would show that you're not in Christ, is what Paul's saying. Because sin is your master since you're obeying. The slave owner insists upon a certain type of conduct. And again, don't forget the main reason that Paul's writing all of this is proof against the accusation made about his gospel that he's being charged with. If you say we're now under grace, then we can sin. And Paul says that, that that's completely impossible if you understand the gospel. If you show me a man who's living in sin, that man is not under grace. He cannot be because this is what grace does. It's a lot like the story of Charles Spurgeon he had a man who was a detractor of the gospel, and he would give Spurgeon a hard time. He'd come to church, but he was an unbeliever. And he was walking the streets of London one day, and he notices this man in the gutter, drunk. And the man evidently rolls over in front of the man, or he looks at him, he gets a good look at him, and he realizes, he, re he recognizes this man from church. He's a, he's a member of Spurgeon's church. So gleefully, he returns to service the next Sunday. And after... After church, he, he goes up to, to Spurgeon. And he says, Dr. Spurgeon, I saw one of your converts this past week drunk in the gutter. And Spurgeon, in his witty way, responded, You're correct. You must have seen one of my converts, because if it would have been one of the Lord's, you would not have seen him drunk in the gutter. That's what Paul's saying here. The perfect Christian testimony is what you were before. You give God thanks that you were before in a condition that you could have never gotten out of on your own. And how you were changed. Someone shared the gospel with you, however that happened. However old you were. You might not remember the, the, the date or the time, but, but there was a point in time when you became obedient from the heart. You, you submitted to the message of the, of the gospel, and it had specific content that content was enough to transform you, and the Lord was the one who was even carrying you along in that work, regardless. It's a mystery. I heard the gospel who knows how many times before that one Sunday when I was there, and I heard the same message that I heard again and again. And you probably heard it a lot of times before. Why that morning? That's, that's a mystery. What I do know is, is that morning, God was at work, and I submitted in my heart to the truth. And then what you are now, that changes you, transforms you. You now want to live for the Lord. And so as you look at that testimony and you listen to that, how do you measure up? 
Can you give that same testimony? Can you see, again, not the date, but can you see that this, this transformation? Yeah, I did realize there was a point where I couldn't save myself. Not just that God was with me, but, but I was lost. And then there was a moment of submission. There was a period of submission where I, I, I put all of my eggs in the Lord's basket. And now I'm different. I live differently now. The last place in the world you would find me would be drunk in the gutter or in some other kind of sin. And when I ever do get into sin, I hate every second of it and call upon that same Lord to forgive me. If you can give that same testimony, Paul says rejoice. Give thanks to God. And if you can't, then the place to start is asking the Lord to do that in you. And then go to this book and start reading and understanding. Read the very teaching that can actually, that can actually change you. Slaves of righteousness because of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I know not how this wondrous grace to me you did impart. What I do know is what I was before, I was blind, but now I see. And I know instinctively you were the one that saved me. And I also know that I have believed and repented and turned. And I believe it all. Whatever you say, Lord, I believe. And however you say to live, I want to live. And that I'm different. I'm, a, I'm not the man that I used to be. And that's the same testimony for, for every believer here this morning. And I pray we give you thanks for that. And for anyone listening that that can't say that, I pray that they would call upon your name and your great grace would save them just as you have saved us. We give you thanks for this saving grace and sanctifying grace. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.